In these perilous times, it's very important to be careful not to dismiss the need to dig deep into the text of Scripture, to stay long on our knees in prayer, and to look expectantly for the coming of our Lord. And so these are times in which we need to be resisting the temptation to go to where so much of the American church has gone, and that is to some kind of shallow, superficial business model of church in which we are trying to entertain the goats. We're trying to inspire the goats instead of feed the sheep. I have listened to sermons lately where pastors are so sensitive and so concerned about the um, newcomer, the unbeliever, the seeker, the person who doesn't understand anything about the nature of Christ and, and the gospel and the Bible, that they really dumb down their teaching, dumb down their preaching to the point where I just can't see how it is that any of God's people are being fed. It's just a tragic reality at this point. And if you're in one of those churches, I tell you, I feel for you. I understand. I've been there myself. And um, it's it's really important for you to consider getting out of there. Um, you're better even, you're better off to stay home and uh, to read through the text of Scripture, read one of Paul's letters, read one of the Gospels, study, study uh, in time with your spouse or your friends, or your uh, get a small gathering together on Sunday morning where you actually take the uh, worship and the reading of the text and, the, and prayer seriously than be in a, a larger church environment where the people there are largely caught up in some kind of a social network with a pastor who's spending spends more time talking about his silly stories and his personal self-disclosures and and entertaining and being and laughing and and having this wonderful time and then really trivializing literally trivializing the the gospel and the uh i heard one pastor say recently that that um uh, speaking of people who just want to do things their way they say you know we, we don't want to wait on the big guy we don't want to wait on the big guy you mean god you mean the triune god the holy righteous merciful god this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. I mean, we've gotten so streetwise that we have no respect, no reverence anymore, and, and no sense of awe for the holiness and the character of God. And so it's a very tragic time. And so as we are continuing to delve into this study of Ephesians, I want to encourage you to be patient and resist the temptation to be looking for short, little, um, uh, brief, messages that are offered to tickle your ears and um, uh, make you feel entertained and happy, but are not intended to help renew your mind, transform your heart, or conform you into the image of Christ by the Spirit. So these are the times, these are the choices that you have before you, and uh, you feel it this these things are not benign it's not without consequence if you're not getting a steady dose 
of biblical exposition, verse-by-verse exposition, empowered by the Spirit, then you're getting something less than that, then you're getting something less than the food necessary to grow in Christ. Why are you doing it? Why are you there? I realize there's social benefits. There's connection. There's even, God forbid, to use the word networking that gets done in churches these days. But is that really the purpose for God's holy people gathering? Is that really the purpose for coming before God and listening for this man to get up and uh, talk to us? If that's what we can call it. There seems to be this aversion to the Bible these days. Uh, pastors seem to be getting away from the Bible. They, they may carry a Bible to a, a little podium or a little music stand, but they spend the first 15 minutes talking about something other before they even get to the text. They quote the text largely out of context, use it as a jump-off point for some other silly illustration or something that is intended to entertain you but doesn't feed your soul. One fellow I noticed that doesn't even carry a Bible. He doesn't even have a podium. He doesn't have, let alone a pulpit. He just has this big screen in front of him, and he reads from it. He just stands there in his shorts and tennis shoes and and his casual shirt. And <laughs> you know, you got to be the job description for a pastor these days is to be hip, slick, and cool. You got to be hip, slick, and cool if you're going to attract hip, slick, and cool people. <laughs> If it wasn't so tragic, it would be funny, but it's not funny. I chuckle only out of anxiety and and grief. So let's get into our text today in Ephesians. Let's let's take this seriously, what we're doing here. I know it's of such benefit to you, and I, I can tell by the response that it is. And so I'm so grateful and so gratified that I get to be a part of this in your life. Um. I'm going to start today. We're going to go into Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And um, I'm going to hit the high points, but I'm also going to go into the valley too a few times just to show you the depths and the breadth of this glorious gospel that we have. Uh, Sometimes, I've even heard one pastor say recently that he can write the gospel on a uh, a pop-up or stick-up note <clears throat> a little yellow a sticky note and 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 hand it to somebody and and actually communicate the gospel to him that's not the gospel i mean if he's just writing down jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life or jesus died for your sins that's as true as far as it goes but that's not the gospel that's not the whole of the gospel that's certainly not the whole counsel of god that paul spent 3 years in ephesus going over house to house, day by day, sometimes with tears as he was begging these people to hear his message and to be prepared for the coming onslaught of wolves that would come in not sparing the flock and to resist them. He said his hands were clean, Acts chapter 20, he said his hands were clean because he did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. Uh, And that could be translated purpose or even will of God, the whole will of God. So before we get into Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, I I want to read you a quote by Gordon Fee 
from his book, What Purpose Exegesis, or To What End Exegesis, I should say. To What End Exegesis, page 196 of that book. He gives us here a really good um, outline of the gospel. What is the gospel? And so, join me now and listen carefully. Feed defines the gospel this way, and I think he's wholly accurate, as you will hear as we go through the letter to the Ephesians. Quote, God's eschatological salvation, affected through the death and resurrection of Christ, and resulting in an eschatological community, who by the power of the Spirit, live out the life of the future in the present age as they await the consummation. End quote. Now let me just elaborate a little bit. God's eschatological salvation. Salvation is eschatological. Are you aware of that? God has taken the future judgment and brought it into the present at the cross. That was judgment and both judgment and salvation occurring at that moment. Judgment upon sin, judgment upon sinful man, and atonement as well. The cross represented God's judgment, poured out upon Jesus, poured out upon his humanity. And the resurrection is the uh, affirmation that God accepted that atoning sacrifice on the part of Jesus. And so the righteous one who offered himself in his humanity for the sins of the world. And so the judgment that we expect in the future, there is a judgment to come. The word eschatological simply means the end things, the, the end thing, when God wraps this thing up. There's an eschatological salvation that has been inaugurated already in Jesus Christ, in his death, resurrection, and with the outpouring of the Spirit. That the salvation to come at the end time with a new heaven and a new earth, and even our new bodies, has been inaugurated in history through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you, by faith in him, in your union with Jesus Christ, are participating in the present time in an eschatological salvation. The kingdom of God has come, and though it has yet to be fully realized, it has come. God's salvation promised to Israel for the last times has actually already begun in the finished work of Christ. So that's what it means. God's eschatological salvation that was affected, put into effect through the death and resurrection of Christ with the result that there's an eschatological community. When we gather as a church, we are a people that stand apart from the world. The church today is so interested in inviting the world into the church that we've lost our sense of separation. We've lost our sense of distinction. We've lost our sense of having anything really to offer to the world because we've just become so 
part of the sewer pit. We're so far into the pig pen, we can't tell whether where the world begins and the church ends or vice versa. We are an eschatological community, which he explains by saying we are living out the life of the future in the present. The kingdom of God is here, and though it is yet to be fully realized, it is present. God has taken up residence with his people. We are the temple of God in the midst of pagan temples on our left and on our right. We are to stand out as a shining city on a hill. So we are an eschatological community. And again, that means that the that God's final purposes for humanity have already begun, been inaugurated. And while they're yet to be fully realized, we are now living out the life of the future in the present age. An age that, by the way, is passing away. And then we are awaiting, of course, the consummation. Philippians 3.20, the redemption of our bodies. So this is a good overview. Gordon Fee has given us a good overview of what is meant by uh, this whole glorious letter of Ephesians. And we're going to read this verses now from 3 to 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. By the way, isn't that good news? Isn't that everything that I just told you good news? You don't belong to this world. You belong to the future kingdom. You are a kingdom citizen. Your citizenship is in heaven. Everything about you is a new creation in Jesus Christ. And that's why he says we are an eschatological people, individually and corporately. And as we read the next 14 verses, you'll get a better grasp now on what I mean. Now listen to what he says. Quote, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. End quote. Wow. Amen and amen. Now, let's take a little look at this. Let's dig into this a little bit. First of all, it's interesting to note that in the original Greek manuscript, this is one long sentence. Paul took a deep breath and said this all in one breath. <laughs> and there's so much here, and he's just getting started. Do you see already that some shallow presentation of the gospel is so pathetic and and provides you so little of what God intends for you to have. I mean, he's saying here in these 14 verses, excuse me, in these 11 verses, 3 to 14, what God has done in his Son on your behalf. And he's it's a plan that originated in the divine mind before the creation of the world. Now, I bet you believe that salvation began for you when you received Christ, when you were baptized, when you heard the gospel and you responded. But your salvation was applied at that time. But it began in the mind of God in eternity. For he chose us in him, verse 4, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. There's that word holy again. If you were with me in the last episode, we talked about in the introduction about being God's holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. God sees you as holy. His plan is that he chose you in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That means that even now, you are holy and blameless in God's sight. You aren't some precariously perched sinner who's, who's leaning towards hell one day and towards heaven the next. No, you are holy and blameless in his sight. He chose you in order to make you holy and blameless in his sight. What does that mean? Well, it means positionally, you are that in God's eyes. God sees who you really are as if you are in this moment in time. So you are who you are positionally before God. That's God's settled stance towards you, is that he sees you as holy and blameless in his sight, in Christ. And that is being worked out and realized in time and space every day. Every day you're making progress, however glacial that progress may seem some days. And how you may stumble, and you may trip, and you may fall, and you have to get back up again. Some days you may seem like you take two steps forward and three steps back. 
but ultimately you're moving forward. Ultimately, God will see to it that he who had begun a good work in you will perfect it. So the fact that you are holy and blameless in his sight already is a beautiful reality that he's working out. You are becoming more experienced of that holiness and that blamelessness every day. So he's chosen you for adoption, he says, as sons. Now, <clears throat> don't let the word sons get you concerned. Uh, he, he's using that word here in regards to inheritance. It's not a gender issue. He's not, uh, he's not omitting women. He's not omitting God's daughters. Some people even quote this verse by saying um, that he is the predestined us or chosen us for, as adopt, for adoption uh, to sonship through Jesus Christ, they'll say, predestined us for adoption to sonship and daughterhood. That's, just, that's not the point of the text. He, he, Paul's not being misogynistic here. He's referring to sonship through Jesus Christ. In other words, we share in Christ's personal inheritance with the Father. It's a sonship inheritance that both men and women in Christ benefit from. We are joint heirs with Jesus. Notice, too, that he says repeatedly, in him, in him, in him. We are nothing apart from who we are in Christ. You might recall that in John chapter 15, the uh, parable that Jesus told about the vine and the branches. And in that parable, he speaks over and over again. Let me just read part of that. John chapter 15, he speaks over and over again how that we can do nothing apart from him. We are nothing apart from him. Verse 4, John chapter 15, Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Let me go to verse 7. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Christ's disciples are those who recognize that they are nothing apart from him. Everything that we have in Christ is because we are in him. We are in union with him. So Paul is emphasizing that back to our text in Ephesians. In him, in him, these good things have happened. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 13, as he's defending himself against the charges of the false apostles, he goes on to talk about visions that he's had and what it means to be a true apostle and the signs of a true apostle. And he concludes that argument with saying, although I am nothing. 
the great apostle Paul declared that apart from Christ, he realized he was nothing. And so are we. Everything that we are, everything that we hope to be, all of our longings are met in Christ. And apart from him, we have nothing but chaos, pain, misery, and hell. Who you are, who you truly are, therefore, is discovered only in Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. You are who you are in him. The true you is realized in Christ. Not in culture, not in business, not in politics, not in romance, not in family or even religion. The true you, who you are, who God created you to be, and who he sees you as even in this moment, is who you are in Christ. What's more, he has freely, it says in verse 6, and lavishly, in verse 8, poured out all of this upon you. Listen, we're not just squeaking in. We're not just, we're not in fellowship with a stingy God. Not only has he done all these things in Christ on our behalf, he's done it freely. In other words, we couldn't have earned it. We never would have been able to earn it. We couldn't do anything to, to evoke it. And he poured it out upon us lavishly. We are recipients of a revealed mystery, he goes on to say, grounded in God's good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Now let's take a moment and look at this word purpose. It is God's eternal purpose to create for himself a people who share in his holiness in their relationships with one another and into creation. God has desired, and it is his purpose, it's his eternal purpose, to create a people, God's holy people, among whom you are named. And that purpose is talked about in verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And then again in verse 11, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. We see this also over in chapter 2, verse 15. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. No more Jews, no more Gentile, one new humanity in Christ. In Christ, again, there's that phrase, in him, in him. And he himself is our peace. There's, no, there's not two plans for two different peoples of God. There's one people of God in Christ. There's one covenant, a new covenant. That's a promise of the Spirit. And we'll get to that in just a moment. So what is God's purpose? Well, 
Paul does a wonderful job in Romans chapter 8 of giving us a really succinct, powerful description of God's purpose. And let's look at that for a moment. Romans 8, 28, he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. There you go. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. You've probably heard before, but that last verse is all in the past tense. It's what God has accomplished so that it is being worked out in your life now. You are already who you are in Christ. All these things that God has done, he's accomplished already. Many people think of uh, Christianity as like one of the worldly probationary religions where you're, you're working towards heaven and you might not make it. And there's, there's no real predetermined plan. There's no real anything accomplished. You're just kind of making it up as you go along. Well, nothing is more contrary to Christianity, biblical Christianity, than that kind of a notion. Clearly, God has predestined, he has called, he has justified, and he has already glorified you. These things have been accomplished, and again, you're just working it out now. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that we should work out our salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to do and to work according to his good pleasure. So you are working out that which has already been accomplished in Christ. That's how secure you truly are. Now, all of this that God has accomplished, all of that that originated in the divine mind in eternity and then was accomplished in history at the cross, is applied to you when you heard the message of the truth. And that's verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. Now, because just because this was occurred in the divine mind in, e, in, in eternity, before creation, and for everyone in the sound of my voice, it was worked out at a time in history long before we were born in the finished work of Christ. We weren't included in it, even though we were chosen and predestined for it. We weren't included into it until we heard the message of the truth, the gospel of our salvation. And we believed. And then we were marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit in him as a deposit of guarantee. Let's see, verse 14, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption, redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So all that God has done, that which originated in the mind of God in eternity, was worked out in human history at the cross, has been applied to you now when you heard the gospel, you believed the gospel, and then God marked you and sealed you with the 
promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of your inheritance until the full redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, this will happen, and it will be to the praise of his glory, not because you were better than anyone else, not because you worked harder than anybody else. Salvation is of the Lord from A to Z, and you are not a passive participant. After you are converted, you are working it out. You are participating. You are passive in your regeneration, in your conversion. That's something God did to you, if you will, to use that phrase. But since then, you've been active. You've been walking in the Spirit. You've been working out this salvation so that you're becoming more like Jesus in thought, word, and deed every day. So God's work was applied to you. You were chosen, you were predestined, but not applied until you heard the message of truth, believed, and were marked and sealed. You still have to hear and you still have to believe in order to have that which God has accomplished applied to you. But listen to me carefully now. Even that is a work of grace. Even you hearing and you believing Faith is a gift of God, Romans 2, 8 through 10. Faith is a gift of God, not of yourself, lest anyone should boast. So even your hearing, God opened your ears. He did a sovereign work on your mind and will. He raised you from the dead and gave you new life and imparted to you the gift of faith so that you heard the gospel and you believed. It was you believing, but it was a gift of grace. And now you've been marked and sealed. Well, let's wrap this up now. I'll just give you a quick summary. You are the product of God's work in eternity that was revealed in time and history and applied when you heard and you believed. This is an eschatological salvation. The Jews knew that salvation would come, and they expected it to come at the end of the age. They expected when the Messiah come, he would, he would wrap everything up, he would bring an end to human history, and he would bring in God's salvation for the righteous, and there would be utter wrath for the unrighteous. What they didn't expect is that with the coming of Christ, Jesus Christ, that that, that salvation, that end-time salvation, would be inaugurated so that we have these overlapping times now. We have the future being lived out in the present within the community of God's people as we live out in this present age, which is quickly, by the way, passing away. So we don't, we don't even belong to this present age anymore. We belong to the age to come. And we're, being, we're living that future age out in the present by the power of the Spirit. So all these things originate in God's mind in eternity. Revealed in Christ in human history and applied when you heard, believed, and were sealed. And it's all a work of the Spirit on the basis of grace. This is the gospel. This is the gospel we must embrace we must become 
um, very in tune with. We must integrate it into our thinking, into our feeling, into our acting, into our speaking, into our relationships with one another. So I encourage you to read Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14 repeatedly. Let it sink way down deep inside of you. It'll be very good for you spiritually, very good for you mentally, and ultimately very good for you relationally. It will change how you do relationships with each other and with people in the church and with the world as a whole. Take advantage of this. Hear the full counsel of God, perhaps for the first time in your life, and rejoice. Well, next time, we'll look at Paul's prayer. He laid these things out, and he starts verse 15 with this, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Next time, we'll look at what it is that God, that Paul is asking God for on our behalf. It's a glorious thing. And may the Lord grant you his peace, his comfort, and his knowledge of his fellowship with him, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.